0: Welcome to What Would Danbury Do, your guide to Julia Quinn's Bridgerton series from A to
1: V. Before we get started, we have some information to share. First, we're so very sorry that it's taken us so long to get back to these episodes. We missed you, and we are so grateful that you stayed with us. We will have a much more regular release schedule from this point forward. Thank you. Second, unfortunately, Rudy has had to step back for the minute due to work commitments. For the remainder of this season, we will be inviting special guest hosts, but no one can ever replace her, and we look forward to when she is able to join us again. So let's jump in. Listeners, we have all been
0: waiting for this moment, this scene, this match. The Bridgertons finally take to their mallets for the most entertaining game of Paul Mall in literary history. But there's so much more than just friendly annihilation. There's Edmund, Violet. Daphne, Daphne and Simon's baby, Mary, Edwina, Kate and one very scared but incredibly impactful bee. It's episode three and things just got complicated. Don't forget you can find us on Facebook and Twitter as at BridgertonPod and Instagram as at WWDDPod and we'd love for you to tweet us using the hashtag WWDDPod.
1: She thumps a cane and drinks champagne, just formidable and judgmental, but we can guarantee that she's a quintessential Lady D, but recognizes great potential, what would them we do? Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Adele. This episode starts with a flashback. And I just want to make a note of the color that is happening in this episode, because when you think flashback, when you think the past, you think like vaguely sepia-toned kind of Is that how yellowish? they say it in Canada? Oh, how would you say it? Sepia. Sepia style. Sounds... Well, oh, does Adele just say it wrong? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Somebody write to us and tell us. So anyway, this sort of yellowish-brownish wash. Um, but this is Bridgerton and this is... The Bridgertons. So, of course, they use a vague, like, bluey, turquoisey wash over the past. And I thought that was a really interesting colour choice. By... And,
0: and some de-aging not-so-magic oh. on Anthony. He looks <laughs> like, like, it's Uncanny Valley, have I used that reference correct? Anyway,
1: like, he looks wrong. And then he has, like, a triangle-curled fringe. Yeah, it's, I think they're definitely trying to suggest that he's got sort of a childish hairdo, like... I'm at university and I go punting and I don't even know what other really rich people in Britain do, but like that sort of hairstyle.
0: I feel like it's like the opposite of a faux hawk. Like it's like a, I don't know, a doe
1: hawk. I don't know what it is, but it's wrong. (laughs) anyway. (laughs) Anyway. All right. So we're we're in the woods. Edmund and Anthony are out stalking, which, by the way, is now what I know it's called since I read Prince Harry's memoir. Only we could do an episode on that one. (laughs) (laughs) And Edmund is trying to teach Anthony how to take down a stag. And Anthony, who apparently has always been Anthony, is too quick and too impatient and just really frustrated that things aren't going his way. But then we've got Edmund, who is just being a really good dad. He's just like, you know, patience, breathe. You can do this. You'll get there. Really solid dad advice in, like, Like, two minutes.
0: I mean, there's the one shot to the heart can down the largest of beasts. That doesn't feel like foretelling at all. And then there's um, just before he dies, I think there's like love is loving the best and the worst of you. And I'm like, yeah,
1: that's pretty much this whole season. (laughs) I like that you said foreshadowing because you're absolutely right. First, there's the like one shot to the heart thing. Then there's the point where he says you're getting in your own way. Like you've decided this and therefore nothing will happen until you change your mind. Could that be the new family motto? (laughs) Get out of your own fucking way. (laughs) Because <laughs> it applies to all of them.
0: <laughs> I mean, and and like an in-house therapist would be the best thing for a Bridgerton <laughs> instead of a in-house father in the
1: shape of a bee. I do. <laughs> yeah, look, Freud mm. is still what a hundred years off at this particular point in time, mm. but we have Edmund doing his fatherly thing and, and dying then... whilst looking like a zombie. <laughs> well, I mean, first he goes to pick the flowers for violet lilies
0: right? they were his favorite they were just purple. they were like yeah they're
1: purple <laughs> although later i think violet says something about lilacs and like oh I, I got the flower wrong look how uh, i'm failing
0: as a human being
1: <laughs> well i like i've never seen lilacs grow out of the ground like that i'm really reasonably sure lilacs that, grow that garden
0: looked as fake as Anthony's young face
1: <laughs> the bee however
0: not fake it looked especially fake when he was like shooing in his face. And
1: then what looked even faker was how he went gray. Look, I don't know. I've never actually seen somebody in anaphylaxic shock before. I don't actually know because there was definitely some swelling and well, definitely just some would be gray. accurate. Yeah. I Look, know. I'm using my dog's paw
0: incident. <laughs> it's done by a bee as a reference point. So who knows?
1: But presumably he would go grey because he wasn't getting enough oxygen, right? he go blue? That is the colour thing. They've already put a blue wash over it. They can't make him go blue as well. He's not a Smurf. So I think the grey might just be the lack of oxygen. And then, of course, Anthony starts freaking out. He calls for his mum. His mum really freaks out. And then she does the first hideous thing that she does to Anthony in this episode which is send him away from his dying father and put him in charge of all of the other children make him responsible for shielding them from his dead father glossing over the fact that he himself has seen his dad die
0: yes that was terrible and boo violet but also context it's yeah. rough. the thing i want to pick apart ruth Gamble. How dare you make me feel that in my chest and in my tear ducts? You terrible human being.
1: Really? How, like, how much did you feel it in your chest and your tear ducts? Well, you ducts? know I'm a
0: stone. I do. And I haven't watched this episode in quite some time. And I actually felt it. And I don't know if it's because I probably skipped these parts in <laughs> the last three <pre-watch. laughs> histrionic isn't something i would necessarily associate violet with ever (laughs) Mm -hmm. to see her go to that extreme i guess that's the choice is like this is how big a deal this is like she's usually someone who has her shit together so
1: yeah i think it's really interesting throughout the course of this episode seeing past violet and comparing her to present violet i genuinely think from this moment on anthony stops growing Right. He sort of becomes who he is in this particular moment, hits like an emotional developmental wall, doesn't really take any emotional steps forward into maturity until, you know, until he has to when he starts meeting Kate. It's a juxtaposition to the way that we see Violet, who in the flashbacks in this episode, we're going to see made some really questionable choices that, as you say, contextually make a lot of sense but also have a direct effect on particularly Anthony but all of her children but then we know that she doesn't stop this isn't the defining moment in her life like it is the defining moment in Anthony's and she eventually grows and continues to mature and and become the Violet that we know Mm. in the future stay with
0: me it's like in that moment She thrusts him away with being present with someone he loves into responsibility. And it's like he never allows himself just to be with someone he loves anymore because he's been thrust at the role.
1: Yeah, Um, that's a really good thought. And then the next scene
0: also supports that, I guess.
1: Yeah, I like that a lot. He doesn't ever choose to stay present. He doesn't even know how, really. She thrusts him out of that moment and then he never really learns how to be present. And he's on always board. on the outskirts of his family.
0: Like, he's never, yeah. in, they all revolve around him, but he's not with them.
1: Yeah. So we move from the past into the present, and we have a coach ride. The Sharmas are headed early to the Bridgeton estate. They are accompanied by Lady Danbury, who is making some pointed remarks about open mindedness. Although, to be-, <laughs> also, <laughs> to be fair, why is she going? I mean, she really doesn't need to go. But she's their sponsor for the season, right? I mean, it's it's just to to involve her unnecessarily. (laughs) I don't think it's unnecessary. I think she's sponsoring them for the season. I don't think like 100% she has to go. But I think that she's Lady Danbury. And of course she's going to go. You
0: know, like. I think what we have to make clear is there isn't, they're discussing the expectation of an engagement or a proposal that will result in an engagement. And then the Sharma's job done. Kate, job done. Mary, I can have a life in a storyline
1: now. (laughs) One of the things I want to do point out, because it's going to drive me absolutely crazy in later episodes. In this carriage ride, we see Edwina, talking about what she can do to please Lord Bridgerton, which dress she should wear, what she can do to make him like her. And Kate points out quite rightly that she should also be thinking about whether she likes him. But Edwina is not ready to hear this and she's more focused on whether or not Anthony is going to like the pink silk dress.
0: Considering Kate spent six years training her daughter to play uh, her daughter. Oh my God. Her sister... To appeal to men it's not unfair that Edwina is worried about someone liking her versus what her happiness is
1: she's been on this path a long time I think that'll come out a little bit later in the episode as well Mm. they arrive at Aubrey Aubrey Hall Hall, and Kate has a Pemberley moment Uh looking upon yes looking upon the extensive grounds of robbery hall you can see her maybe begin to question whether anthony is so bad after all
0: and while she's doing that anthony is looking upon her ground for facade <laughs> and smiling to himself and their little interplay which was very cute with newton as well newton who is in short supply this whole season daphne mistakenly believes that this is the Edwina Sharma whom Anthony wants to marry because she can
1: feel the heat. Well, also, I mean, Anthony comes out at like the whole, all of the and clan mm. come out, including baby Augie, all there, you know, on the front steps to greet the Sharmas and Anthony goes to Kate first. And you could argue it's because she's standing there alone. Yes, Or you could argue that, He's really just going to see Kate, and that's the end of it.
0: So. He wants her so bad. <laughs> Anthony cooing at that baby—it's in the background—is so Jonathan. It's so the actor. I don't know if it's the actor is it an Anthony choice, but I'd like to think Anthony would be a great dad. In the books, apparently, he is. Well, actually, he is a really good dad to his siblings, some of his siblings.
1: Yeah, and um, it's so sweet. It is actually. I'm I so think- soft. <laughs> Actually, I think the way that all of the Bridgetons react with the baby is really telling. Yeah. You know, we see a lot of them cooing and greeting him and just being really excited about the next generation. And then Eloise is invited over and she's like, has he changed since the last time I saw him? So very clearly not engaged with baby. And and yet all
0: the men are. Like Colin grabs a baby, Anthony's cooing. I can't remember what Benedict was doing, but when do I ever? Um, (laughs) like. Yeah, like, obviously, like, we know family is important to the Bridgertons. So, yeah, so this is, like, the first of many observations Daphne makes during her
1: episode. Through the whole episode, I feel like Daphne is tuned into Anthony and in what's happening much more deeply than anybody else, including Anthony and Kate. Mm-hmm. Like, she knows chemistry. She feels chemistry. She understands chemistry. She knows what's happening here. Yeah. Immediate,
0: and she knows her brother really
1: well. Yeah, All right, um, we so- we do have to quickly mention the Featherington households. We absolutely do, particularly because they're called Luckless Souls in the Lady Whistledown voiceover. Penny's is fucking mean.
0: She's so mean. She's mean a lot in this episode. Honestly, clearly, she's got
1: having some uh, Eloise withdrawal. <laughs> Yeah, look, it's one of the things that I feel was so important in the books. Lady Whistledown could be cutting. She wasn't mean. She would take down people who deserved it, but she was always much more clever than she was mean. Mm. And there's a lot of the voiceover that, like even the voiceover for the Sharmas was about how far ladies will travel for an engagement. And I mean, referring to her own family as luckless souls, might be a little bit less mean because of course she includes herself in that but yeah i agree the voiceover from lady whistledown is very very mean this season
0: you can say stuff about your family right Mm. and you can say it to each other but to say it publicly is next level and she does love them like she doesn't hate them she hates her circumstances but moving on Portia realises the perfect solution to Lord Featherington trying to find a wife is that she's got the perfect, biddable, controllable one in her own household, which is daughter number one, or is she daughter number two?
1: I can't remember. Yeah, the tall one. The one who didn't marry for cheese. (laughs) I would marry for cheese. I think Prudence (laughs) made the call. Philippa, ba- Philippa, sorry, yeah, yeah. I
0: always get them mixed up.
1: I always thought this was a little bit of a self own, really, though, because Portia is like, we need somebody dumb who's completely incapable of managing a household, who is in fact utterly useless on every level, and then her own daughter walks in, and it's Portia's job to make sure that Prudence is well brought up and able to manage a household. So to this- suddenly be like, you're useless. It's kind of your own fault, Portia. Should this like, be you- contemporary
0: societal commentary about how baby boomers claim millennials <laughs> and genetics for being spoiled and not knowing how to do things?
1: It's like we're in the, like reflection of your parentings, dude. <laughs> Um, Varley also drops a term that I'm going to be using for the rest of my life, which is chickabiddy, sort of a derogatory name for. Oh, well, it girls. sounds
0: derogatory. It sounds like it could be racist too. Like there's something about it. I will Google before I use it, but I love it, chickabiddy. I think it's so cute. Can I say not terrifically interested in any of the Featherington storylines this episode? No, really. I'm not even that like interested in pen. I mean,
1: do I say this so, every time? Yes. Yes. <laughs> So, Portia says you will charm him with some assistance and the idea that finally she's going to start helping Prudence get a match. And what I loved best is there's like this split second scene with Penny where she literally face palms and then we move on. And it's funny how you say that the Lady Whistledown commentary is mean through the season because I think it absolutely is. But Penelope's so disengaged from her family. And I mean, she's always felt like an outsider. She's always sort of recognized that she's smarter, she's more interested in the world, she has more to offer than her sisters have ever sort of thought about. But she's never been disengaged to this extent. And I imagine that those two things are really quite entwined with each other, right? Like her disengagement from her family, her feud with Eloise and the meanness of Lady Whistledown. I think we're all part of the same braid. I'm getting so tired and it's not your commentary.
0: I'm just bored.
1: (laughs) They like they clearly know what we're all waiting for. Yes. Because they keep going back to Aubrey Hall and we're like, yes. Paul Mall, And then they're like, no, we're going to give you another scene. And then they're like, yes, Paul Mall," And then they're like, no, we're going to give you another scene. So we get a scene with Eloise who's reading and she's slipping revolutionary literature into her book. And I didn't notice the first time I watched, but Colin absolutely clocks that that's what she's doing. So Colin is more observant than we may have given him credit for. Ever. Well, it's much so, more in line with the, the Colin from the books. Um, they've definitely deviated a lot with Colin, but
0: there has been some attempts in this season to get closer to the Cupid Colin and the knowing Colin and the hmm. connected Colin, because he really is the glue of the family in the books. Like he's yeah. the three line. So Anthony asked Violet for the ring and it's one of many conversations. Like, you sure?
1: You don't look like you really have your heart in this, dude. Just before we get there, I do like that Eloise and Kate have a immediate bond as they go up the stairs, and they're both wearing blue, so it's and a nice blue stockings. Connection. Yeah, exactly. I thought that was really kind of well, a nice little love moment. Ride. They both love like
0: riding. They both love the country. They're really competitive. They're very, yeah. both very independent. But Kate is a person in the real world, yeah. and Eloise needs to learn how to be in the real world. <laughs>
1: We get a shot of Violet's engagement ring. I tried to zoom in, but I couldn't really get too, too close to it without it going out of focus. And I get that fashions change, but I think it's a really ugly ring. I don't hate it. (laughs) You don't hate it?
0: No, is it pearls? What is it? I think make- it's like it looks like a little like a daisy in pearls or something. But I didn't try to look at it, so my memory might be bad. But
1: I actually used to have a ring like that. Did you? oh Now I feel like I've insulted some family. But you know me; ears. I'm not a
0: real like fussy jewelry type. So mm. I just would always want to choose a ring myself. It's really nice to have an heirloom, whatever. But no, I want my ring. Also, I'd start thinking about who's died wearing this ring.
1: I mean, it's is this to ring be- haunted?
0: It's Violet's engagement ring, right? So did he rip it up his mum's, I was going
1: to say cold dead hand, but it's like warm alive hand. No, probably not. Look, I don't know very much about the fashion of wearing jewellery. It may be that, you know, you get an engagement ring and then you get a wedding band and you take your engagement ring off.
0: Maybe, but Violet is someone who still wakes up and thinks her husband's next to her. Can you see her? giving over a ring like that where it's like one of the last things other than the seven children
1: that he has that she has of his no i like i think it makes a lot of sense because if it, especially if it's an heirloom then she would know that it would go to her son when he they can wait god damn it <laughs> cold dead hand it's violet violet has been trying to get her children married off since they were born
0: but like anthony says why are you so cautious about this then? You've been trying to marry me off
1: all the time. He's, He's examining so that ring so closely. I couldn't figure out what exactly he was looking for. Like... <laughs> Did she give me the real one? Yeah. <laughs> he was definitely Has she really looking Has she swapped out <laughs> the jewellery for paste? <laughs> are the Bridgertons actually in trouble? Lady Whistledown would know if that was true. Absolutely.
0: It also segues into (laughs) what happens immediately after Edmund has died. And what happens is, apparently, every staff member known to man comes at an 18-year-old kid who's just dealing and starts asking very functional and operational questions that I understand why they need to know. But I would like to think they'd give
1: him a second... I, look, I wrote down the same thing. I said that there's lots of footmen with lots of questions and the admin of death is a lot. But also very like, like a
0: huge hierarchy in terms of staff and the family. Like would any of them be
1: talking to him that way? Well, I, was, I did wonder if there should be the like butler, a personal. butler maybe. Or like a personal secretary or something. Yeah, But not all of um, them. But I suppose, that, okay, so the way that it worked in my head. So first of all, I was like, Jesus Christ, give the man some space. He's clearly like overwrought, but also I think part of the whole mythology of the Bridgertons is how close they are and how much they love each other as a family and how unusual that is. So I expect that when a man dies, generally speaking, you know, the son is quite excited to move up to the title or is well prepared for that kind of duty. So they don't worry too, too much about the emotional niceties because Anthony is expected to, A, already be man enough to, like, assume the mantle of the Viscount title and all of the responsibility that comes with it. But also, like, not to be that attached to his dad. Like, it's not supposed to devastate I mean, him that's a this deeply.
0: Because I'm like, what should we do with the body? Put it in the cold room somewhere or the keep it cold. Also, you know what really pissed me off and I only realized on this watch? The lady's maid asks, she's still hysterical. Still. Mm. I'm assuming this is maybe in the first half an hour, if that.
1: Yeah. I Look, think and- she's
0: allowed to, like, she's also heavily pregnant, So, if you're assuming they don't have a relation, like like a personal relationship between son and daughter, wait, sorry, son and father, because I said it the wrong way around, father and son, wouldn't you think that women are pathetic and really soppy? So, let her go.
1: Well, I mean, the maid does point out that it's probably not good for the baby, which is fair. I mean,
0: that's really enlightened, lady. Well, but also, I mean, how Also, she's on the stairs. Like, it is dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) I mean,
1: I'm not even safe on the stairs when I'm sober. How did she get from the garden through the house to, like, collapse on the stairs? Like, why didn't they bring her to, like, a nice fainting couch or something? Because it is a very physical performance. Yeah, it is a very physical performance. all over the place. It's like the turmoil of her heart is externalised. I have to say that Jonathan Bailey is giving such good face in this scene. And I'm so mad. I'm still so mad that he didn't get the Emmy nomination and Reggae Jean Page did because Jonathan Bailey leaves Reggae Jean Page in the dust. Plates can be directed
0: to. <laughs> <laughs> look, I actually agree with you. I, but you know, like, it's ne- like who gets nominations is never about the performance, <laughs> let's be honest. I think Reggae Jean is, he's no character. <laughs> but Jonathan Bailey, he breathes in character. Yeah,
1: he does a really good job.
0: He doesn't just stand and look handsome.
1: He, d- he can do both. He can stand and look handsome and give really good face. Yeah, So, so let's get to the fun bit. home. It's still not the fun bit. I mean yes, <sighs> okay, like it, like it's the next step towards the fun bit where Daphne's going around and like laying out the wickets, providing this sort of concise breakdown of like what kind of player all of the Bridgetons are and how Kate and Edwina should conduct themselves during the game. There's a lot of moments in this episode that really clearly broadcast how much of a Bridgerton Kate is and how much of a Bridgerton Edwina is not. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think
1: the first moment was on the stairs with Eloise when she and Eloise sort of have that moment. And Kate's in blue and, you know, she's already slotting in with Eloise where Edwina failed to make a connection with Daphne. I think this is the second moment when Kate is excited about this. You know, her competitive juices are up. She's having a really good time already and they haven't even started yet. She has that sort of anticipatory gleam in her eye and Edwina just looks terrified. They make another comparison
0: a bit later in the pool mall stuff, which is Edwina doesn't want to play anymore because she doesn't want to get her shoes dirty. Yeah. And Kate and Anthony don't give a shit about their shoes. I'm like, that's
1: very, very obvious. <laughs> it could be twisted to say that Edwina cares more for her servants. So
0: that- I was going to say
1: that. Yeah. you beat me to it. Yeah.
0: Like, Anthony doesn't give a shit if his valet has to, like, work on those, like, leather boots for, like, hours. Get <laughs> He only gets to sleep between three and four a.m. and all deal with in- a belligerent asshole all day <laughs> no wonder <laughs> he got in- yelled at at 18 he's been an asshole he's all alive
1: it's all in pursuit of Paul Mall, alright okay and then we don't actually get to the Paul ball game, we go back to London, we're in Genevieve's modiste shop, Lady Featherington is all, get her tits out, and Genevieve is like, stop fucking with my design lady, and yeah Importantly, we have Penelope's attempt to explain away why Genevieve saw her at the market buying letters, and Genevieve is really just doesn't want
0: to be a
1: part of this conversation. She's
0: she's Teflon. It's not ex- it doesn't exist yet, but she's Teflon.
1: Yeah, or um,
0: well, maybe Penelope's- Teflon exists in this alternate reality. <laughs>
1: But Penelope, whose tits are out, is really having a bit of a heaving bosoms moment. She's clearly very stressed about everything that's going on.
0: So yeah, um, Jonathan Bailey acts with his breaths.
1: <laughs> Everyone knows where I'm about to go. <laughs> Look, if you've got a rack like that, like Nicola Coughlin,
0: act with your breasts. They are <laughs> magnificent. <laughs>
1: We finally get to Paul Mall. The thing that I wrote here on my notes is this whole thing was narrative edging.
0: <laughs> I was just thinking play, but edging is much more accurate
1: <laughs> and specific. But we finally get there. The screenwriters finally take it there. <laughs>
0: but we also know that Benedict's apparently stressing out about getting into the Royal Academy of the Arts. Oh, uh, yeah. Do we care? No, we don't care. Not really. It's also like you've had your adventure. You've developed as a human being to Colin. I'm like, you could have gone overseas, surely. You're the second son.
1: I thought that was actually really interesting because it's a direct contrast to what happened in the books, right? Because Colin's book is all about how he feels unworthy and and bereft without an occupation and he specifically names Anthony as having the Viscount position and all of that responsibility and Benedict has his art and all of the landscapes and Colin has nothing and then you know develops himself that way so this is the exact opposite because now Benedict is saying well you had your travels and I've had nothing and you know I want to pursue art to try and have some sort of occupation leave a mark on the world so it's an exact opposite so we actually skipped forward a little bit because we have Edwina being a tiny bit insufferable here and talking about having fun, like come to the competitive side, Edwina. We have cookies and also the mallet of death, which Kate chooses. I love, Anthony- I kept that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no. And everyone absolutely piles on to Anthony, who is doing a terrible job of pretending he doesn't care.
0: There's something about a hero on the screen doing a terrible job of not looking petty that I find highly attractive. <laughs> Just me? <laughs> Look, you know, we all have our things.
1: Oh, I love it. Well, also I think it's, a, it's bonding too, right? All of the Like he does this slow
0: clap with a smirk at one point. I'm like, I've never found you hotter. Apparently, I really do like bad boys that are awful, but he's not that awful. But yeah, I'm like, ought to (laughs) be.
1: Also, I mean, historically, I think that pink was a manly color. Should we just subscribe to this bullshit around
0: gendered colors? No. Do I like the fact that she stole the black one out from under his nose and his siblings loved it? Yes. As you mentioned, like Daphne talks through all their games and they come, it's foretelling what's actually happens because I forgot about Colin until he waxed the ball right into the bushes after Kate has smacked Antony's into the bushes and then Mm -hmm. Colin follows it. And clearly from what he says afterwards, which is like, you two go and get it, you know, it's Cupid Colin from the books.
1: Yeah, it's not only Daphne who has an inkling of what's going on. Like, look, to be honest, I I wasn't entirely sure if we're supposed to think that Colin understands sexual tension or... If Colin's just a chaos monkey, because it could go either way, really.
0: I mean, my rate is second. I still think of him as a 14 year old.
1: Yeah. There's also this part where Anthony goes, I hit my ball out of the way on purpose. So you, Edwina, would have a clear path with your colour. Do you think that she believed him? In some ways, it's a bit harder to get
0: a read on Edwina. Like what's making her feel uncomfortable? Is it that she senses maybe they're not on the same page? Maybe it's the competitiveness. Maybe it's feeling oh my sister's fitting in with this better than I, and they co- mm-hmm. might be comparing us. Like who knows? And I don't think it's the fault of the actress. I just think it was a bit underwritten in this scene. They just make her look juvenile and just a bit insipid, prefer- yeah. preferencing, like clothing and feeling uncomfortable over actually making an effort. Which I don't know if that's fair because that's a lot I of energy coming at you with from a lot of very competitive extroverted people. And I don't know if I agree that. I think she might be an introvert. So, yeah, it's
1: a lot. I think this might be the first overt opportunity where we as viewers begin to understand how much pressure Edwina is putting on herself. Yes. The vast majority of the story up until this point has been how much responsibility Kate has shouldered, how much work she's done, how she's set aside any hopes or dreams or ambitions she might have had for herself in order to support Edwina and bring Edwina back up to London and give Edwina every chance that she could possibly have. But one of the things that I think is done quite subtly, particularly in these earlier episodes, is how much internalizing Edwina has done of that and how much pressure she puts on herself. And I think a lot of the things that are a bit insipid, as you say, and are, you know, genuinely quite irritating are also her efforts to be perfect and her efforts to deserve all of the attention and all of the benefits that she's going to reap on behalf of her sister. And I think in this scene, we start to see that a little bit where she doesn't feel like she can get involved because, She can't be anything except the perfectly brought up, well-mannered, always charming, always calm future Viscountess and not Kate, who literally has no skin in the game and can therefore throw herself in. But Kate is being 100%
0: herself. Edwina doesn't feel like that would be accepted. Exactly. That's really upsetting. I think you're right about how subtle or underwritten, whatever you want to say, a lot of the audience – could not see the inverse of Kate's pressure being Edwina's pressure. This is a shed pressure. This wasn't just one person working their ass off. It was two. And one of them was conditioned a lot more as a young person. He'd you have good intentions and have bad outcomes. And Edwina feels her whole worth is not – actually, this gets disproved a little bit later, but, like, it's this one outcome she's aiming for. Yeah. yeah. Well, they They're all
1: aiming for. Well, and I don't think that Edwina is insensate to the fact that the fate of her family rests on her marrying well. Like I mean, she that's has the
0: basis to- of so many historical romance books and probably yeah. many others on top of that. But, yeah, if, this is not new to the, the genre. She um, has to marry well enough that she can financially support her family. She's just a character you don't get the direct per- perspective of as often, so you yeah. feel less empathetic towards her, which is a bit rough.
1: It is, although I do still maintain that she's very irritating, mm. very often. I don't
0: find her irritating. I just, there's so many parts of this episode where I'm like, did there need to be this much stuff in here that's not interesting?
1: Because <laughs> this episode's an hour and eight minutes. Yeah. It's a lot. We get a little minor scene with Violet and Mary talking about their children and Relating to each other. The only time having- Mary
0: gets to talk about something other than
1: marriage. Only yeah. time she
0: gets to talk about herself.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, she and Violet have a nice moment talking about, you know, having lost their husbands and how important their children are to their lives. So- Which
0: then sets up what happens with Kate and Anthony in the bushes. <laughs> that very cute fall in the mud them actually having a moment of connection over laughing, which these two people do not seem like people that laugh very often. And then they have a genuine moment talking about wanting the best for their siblings. I think this actually happens before the fall. I'm just like you, Anthony. I just Mm. have a vagina.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I feel the responsibility as keenly as you do. I have that protective instinct as well
0: yeah that that moment of connection which is talking to each other like equals which was really like the actors nailed that it's the first time they've sort of just spoken not vulnerably but like just as a person not like trying to get a reaction out of each other and then you have the moment of them falling where they connect on like a laughter and a bit of joy which is not Mm -hmm. common for them and then getting a little saucy with each other again, and she accidentally, meaningfully, hits the ball and hits Edmund's marker. Like They had these two moments of connection. They have a third one that he's not aware of. This is when I think the actress was so great. You could see this vulnerability and realisation wash over her, and she looks like a tiny child like Anthony does by CGI at the start. (laughs) But, like, they both lost father's. They both took on a lot of responsibility. They both haven't probably dealt with their loss at all. And we know that Kate's loss is a huge part of the book and it's not dealt with at all in this season. So it could be a bit of a glimpse into next season maybe, hopefully. But it's really smartly done, these three moments of connection, bang, 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 but
1: all very different on the emotional scale. Mm. But I do want to make a point about them falling in the mud and then laughing, which I also agree is a really nice scene. It releases some tension for the viewers because, you know, they're fighting all the time. They're sparring all the time. Yeah, that's all the time. Yeah. Well, and I think what that laughing scene does is it sort of says they understand when they've gone too far. Like they know how to take the sparring to a line and then they know... When they've crossed that line and they're able to draw it back and to find genuine connection, which I think is really important when yeah. working with this enemies to lovers plot line. I think you have to be very aware that it can be a very fine line between mutual antagonism and harassment slipping and over. And yeah slipping over into yeah. the darker side of it and i think that's what the laughing does really really well
0: i don't know if this is an actor or a directorial decision or even in the writing kate starts laughing when he's trying to help her out like she thinks this ridic- this situation is kind of ridiculous it is she's beginning to see the how funny it is he's like very oh, still and i think that that decision showing us a lot about the characters in that she's had a bit more joy in her life she's finding the frivolity in it it took him a while to feel okay to even to laugh mm. he took longer and i think that's really symbolic of them as people and their experiences in
1: this world yeah um,
0: but yeah really well done and like
1: they cover a lot of ground in that really fast if you think about it they do um and i think also just it's important to note for anybody who is following the Paul Mall game that daphne wins again
0: and we never that's know why she's it.
1: good <laughs> look she's kept the secret from the viewers as well yeah she's an absolute enigma but Anthony starts walking away into another turquoise flashback and this is the birth scene so Violet is in labor with hyacinth something is obviously not going right Violet's in a lot of pain Physically for the labor and uh, going into labor before the baby is quite ready, but also obviously all of the emotional pain of having to go through this with Edmund and just the stress of everything as well. Antony is presented with an absolutely impossible choice. I'm still not sure what she wanted him to do. I look, I don't think she is either. Um, (laughs) I, I would tell you what I
0: wrote down. So women had no say on the body. Is she saying that Edmund would defer to her choice so he would know what to do That like to listen to her? Is that the interpretation? Or is she mixing together who is in charge versus what he would do and then it's becoming this jumbled mess? The only thing I could think of is as a man he defers
1: to her in the role as the Viscount. Mm. I, yeah, look, it's really tricky because she does say, you know, Edmund loved me so much he should be here. He would know what to do, which... I originally took as Edmund would choose me because he loves me so much.
0: But we also know that the rate of infection with cutting into women at that point was basically killing them anyway, so... Well,
1: they didn't know how to stitch them back up again, so... And they didn't know
0: that they should be washing their hands.
1: Yes, exactly. So if they cut into her and took the baby out... Like, that is killing the mother. It's just the way that it is. Also,
0: like, that doctor, terrible. I would not let him, I
1: would not let him go back into the room. Yeah. Um,
0: he, I mean, that was reflective of the time, though. I've seen lots of people yeah. get really upset about this. And like, this was reflective of the time.
1: It is. But, it's. It look, it is quite a traumatic scene yeah, to, and, yeah. to watch. But we never can answer in what they do. Well, I mean, clearly something must happen. They must move the baby or.
0: I want to bet there's a midwife in there doing the right thing quietly. Yeah. Just pretending they're listening to the doctor's like advice because he was terrible.
1: Mm. But I mean, Anthony displays some proto feminism by saying do whatever Violet wants. I don't know necessarily that it's, empowering of Violet so much as he just can't deal. So he walks away and And just leaves it for her.
0: There is a lot of histrionic Violet, like all through this episode. I wish there were a few more layers in there. She's either (laughs) up here and my hand is above my head or she is flat as a tack. So Yeah. yeah,
1: it's a choice. It is. I mean, it's more that, I mean, obviously grief affects everybody differently and there are different stages at all times. And we do see, Like, Violet is hysterical in the very high emotionally impact scenes. But I do find that the writing in the scene was quite conflicted in that, yeah, I genuinely didn't know what Violet wanted from Anthony or what Edmund would have done, even though Violet seems to be very sure that she would know what Edmund would have done. In
0: some respects, some of the scenes are really well written. And some of them are really not it feels like it's been written by committee or people have split up the scenes.
1: I it just I mean, many maybe it's genuinely supposed to be confusing, but yeah. um I mean as it would be. Know, it did leave me unaware of what I was supposed to feel at, in that scene. And as such I don't think that it worked particularly well.
0: Mm. Anyway, uh, I'm really My sorry next we- line in my notes is don't care about the Featheringtons. <laughs> I don't well, even know what this scene is. That's all I wrote.
1: <laughs> well, Lady Featherington is trying to teach Prudence to flirt. And I, oh, look, you go. She must be so frustrated that, like, all of her intelligence and her scheming genes all ended up with the daughter that she doesn't really like and not with the ones that she does.
0: We have a one-on-one with Observation, <laughs> Edwina and Anthony sort of talk about how he doesn't read anything but ledges and she has strong feelings that she will support his traveling around while she looks after the children. But please don't confuse that with being a pushover.
1: Yeah. He's like, you're so agreeable. It's so refreshing. And I hear you will never cause me any trouble whatsoever. And I will do whatever I like. And we're supposed to find all this delightful, by the way,
0: with a little choir of old ladies, smiling old ladies who aren't old ladies. It was a nice scene. Did it need to be that long? Probably not. Yeah. I wanted to
1: feel more connected to Edwina as Same. also somebody who reads a lot and finds a lot of pleasure in reading, but I don't know. I, I recognize, but she's just so sanctimonious.
0: And I find that really troubling. The value in this scene is what happens afterwards, which are the sibling chats. Yeah. So we have uh, lady Danbury listening at the door while Kate and Edwina talk. And we hear about how there was no lulls in the conversation. You know what? going have conversations where there are no lulls because I don't like anyone else talk not necessarily also, a
1: good thing she's retconning there were 100% lulls also we just have to go back for a second to note that Edwina wants to tell Anthony about Galip, who was 16 at the time and had not written anything no. so that's a yeah literary fail but to historical accuracy fail <laughs> on the part of the writers, maybe check the yes. dates before you just throw out random Indian writers. Edwina's retconning. There were definitely awkward lulls. It's totally fine. Whatever. She's happy. And then we have that delightful scene where Lady D is listening at a door. Lady Bridgerton is listening at a door. Eloise walks in and is like, what is going on here? They
0: don't have TV, Eloise. Stop judging. <laughs> um. The Daphne and Anthony scenes great. That's where the Bridgertons have the advantage. They've had more screen times to develop yeah. individually, an extra season. Daphne talks about what it's like to fall in love with someone, to hold your breath, to, like, not be able to look at them, feel like, you know, all that stuff. And he definitely starts staring off in the distance, and they just thankfully resisted the need to have a recollection of, like, a misty <laughs> gate up in the l- top right
1: corner. <laughs> well, this is why Anthony is so good, because... You know, there's a, yeah, you know there's a Misty Kate in the corner there. The screenwriters don't have to put it there. He's doing it all. Um, is this a second are you sure conversation? I yeah, its you a lot in are, are you sure count of the conversation through the episodes for reasons of I don't know. I'm just going to continue to call it narrative edging through the rest of this series. We're back in town, dinner at the Featheringtons with the Cowpers, where Crusita is absolutely throwing herself. Lord Featherington talking about her warm and affectionate and maternal nature and okay look I know obviously Penny has reasons to later throw the new modiste under the bus but I quite like her dress I think her dress is quite interesting not scandalous they're not horrible they're I'm not saying
0: Cressida is a nice human being but I she's doing the best she can And I'm beginning to feel sorry for her because she does not deserve this. Like, no one deserves anything, like, that comes at them. Like, you know.
1: (laughs) She didn't get the prince. She's not getting Lord Featherington. Her hair is pulled back so tightly that I'm reasonably sure she must go around with a migraine 30% of the time.
0: I think we all sort of project our own me and girl on Cressida, but
1: I don't know if it's warranted this season. I mean, she didn't have a brilliant first season like she was supposed to, right? So I feel like she's been taken down a few knots. I mean, we're not going to ever like Cressida. Uh, but you know. we have to credit the fact that Daphne
0: completely blew up what was going to be her marriage yeah. to a prince. Yeah. And Daphne didn't even want him. If you told this story from Cressida's point of view,
1: <laughs> that could look like her villain origin story. Like, come on. And I mean, her story is not really that different from Edwina's in the sense that she's an only child. She is the only opportunity that that family has to continue in importance and wealth. So it's, you know. Yeah. All right. um, I did like it this one scene where somebody says that there's nothing quite like British cooking. And then I thought, oh, friends.
0: Whew. Yeah, we do like bland, white, like gelatinous. <laughs> Boiled to shit vegetables seasoning what that
1: <laughs> <laughs> so then we move from british cooking to colin spiking benedict's tea i look now i did some googling on this because it's a weird purple powder right and it's supposed to open his mind and the vast majority of the people on the internet think that it's likely opium i am not familiar with opiates barring like the codeine that i occasionally take for migraines which does not open my mind, but the internet tells me that opiates can sort of give that feeling. They could also be mushrooms or some other kind of psychedelics like that, but it's likely opium. They're likely purple because they would have been dyed with lavender and it would be very common for men of this era to be able to get their hands on it and get high as necessary. Just
0: like the mental picture of Benedict being in a Taylor Swift music video in his head.
1: <laughs> I mean, for a first go with mind altering substances, he goes all in. I, if I was Colin, I'd be pissed. Like how much of that little package that Colin bought? And you know that cost Benedict a ton. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and he's just like ha ha (laughs) i'd be like that was your tripping balls dosage for probably (laughs) also the Um, idea that like this colin would do that doesn't seem real to me
1: book colin maybe you know i think i actually disagree i think the book colin wouldn't seek out mind-altering substances i think like He's bored with his life and he feels a little bit like he doesn't have any responsibilities or sort of any pursuits. But I don't feel like he would hide behind or try and drug himself out of that. Whereas television Colin has no idea who he is and is basically bouncing from one heartache to another. He feels like a college student and college student Colin 100% would lean into the opiates with this idea that it would make him more worldly and more grown up. So I disagree. I think television Colin would take opiates.
0: He takes the opiates to distract himself from the fact he hasn't heard if he's gotten into the Royal Academy of the Arts or whatever. And then it goes straight to a scene of Kate preparing tea and having conversation with Eloise.
1: And like brewing proper tea with great with all of these spices and making proper chai. I saw this scene and I thought, oh, well, that's just supposed to be a clever visual play. But then I did wonder if it perhaps it was suggesting that Chai and opiates are similar and maybe that wasn't. But like some storyline that Kate's microdosing it. the whole time. Yeah. And I did wonder perhaps that even though the visual play was a bit cute, maybe perhaps it wasn't the best choice to have gone on with. But I, I really liked what you said earlier about Kate living in the real world and Eloise thinking she wants to live in the real world, but not really having any way of doing so. And I think, like, this next scene really underlines what you said about that because, you know, there's Kate making tea and Eloise comes out and asks her, you know, you seem great. You seem to be having a great time. Being unmarried is amazing. Tell me all about it. And Kate sort of reining her in a little bit and being like, it's not fabulous. It's not really the best way to live at the moment. It's like a perception
0: versus reality thing.
1: Yeah. Mm. I mean, I can't remember which one of them makes the point that it's not the women's fault, it's society's fault, which they're very right about. But, yeah, I do think it was another opportunity for Eloise to maybe listen to people around her that she doesn't necessarily take to her own detriment. So we go
0: from here into... A really heavy flashback scene of Violet at some point in the year following Edmund's death, quite, quite low. And my feeling is like, obviously, it's grief. Do you think there might might, might have been some postpartum
1: in there as well, potentially? I mean, regardless of what happened in the end, certainly that would have been an incredibly traumatic birth experience. And mm. she may have come through it physically unscathed, but it's unlikely Mm -hmm. It's very clear. She didn't come through it emotionally unscathed. I wrote down in my notes, maybe Anthony and Violet should have taken some opium. (laughs) I mean, so we're both
0: oldest in our families. I understand where Violet's at, but you cannot say that shit to an eldest when it's not fixable. There is nothing they can do and they will punish the shit out of themselves to try and find a way or blame
1: themselves for not being able to fix it. Her grief is just so all-consuming, and she is so selfish in it. And, again, as you say, context. But, yeah, as you say, like, you don't say the quiet parts out loud, you know. And she's not engaging with Hyacinth, clearly, either. Well, I mean, she goes to see the children. She, try, you know, she gets dressed, she bathes or whatever. It's, like, it's Taylor Swift. This is
0: me trying is what I was thinking while I was watching. Yeah. Like, yeah. But
1: I mean, you, and you can say I'm trying my best and this is my best. And this is what I can do. But all of the other things that she said to him, particularly the suicide ideation. It's rough. It's a lot to lay on Anthony's shoulders.
0: And I think, it wasn't It wasn't an asking for help either.
1: no no. And I think that she conveniently forgets that Anthony is still very young when it suits her, and then uses his youth against him again when it suits her, and again, context of what she's going through, but at the same time, like at some point you have to recognize that you're the grown up and that you don't have the luxury of treating your child this way it's almost
0: an edge of her punishing him for not being edmund
1: yeah for not dying for not being i think she
0: i think she actually has been doing that subconsciously and had been for quite some time if not the whole time between the flashbacks and i think she probably gave up there was a point where it stopped but it could have been years
1: hmm So we have that flashback scene, that very intense flashback scene where Ruth Gemmel and Jonathan Bailey do some really excellent work. And then it it jumps forward where Antony, you know, in a moment of real honesty, says to her, your love for my father means that I'll never love anybody. And I don't want anyone to love me because I cannot hurt somebody like that. I can't be the cause of that pain. I think what he doesn't say is, I can't feel that pain as well. And we sort of see Violet start to realize how her actions have these long consequences and start to, I think, really internalize the fact that she has real responsibility here and she can badger him and badger the rest of her children into getting married and talk about the joys and the love and everything but that she taught a way bigger lesson early on yeah exactly like like she taught them that that experience isn't joyous she's colored the joy by the way
0: that she handled her grief Um, and then she didn't talk about him they don't talk about him we hear that later in the season. So not only did she teach them that lesson, she taught like not to, like she kept him to herself their whole childhood. Yeah. Not the grief, but, you know, the stories, the joy of it. All they saw was the negative parts of it. And I wrote down he's both scared and scarred by her behaviour. Yeah, And you can see she's reckoning with that. It had never occurred probably to her in that moment which is pretty cool that Anthony actually said something because clearly Mm. he hasn't done that before but I think it's you know he doesn't want to cause anyone that pain shows what a good person he is underneath all the stuff (laughs) but he's lived through that pain he knows he probably can do it again he it's familiar like it's a bit safer than causing that (laughs) in someone else but I mean as a motivation for not falling in love, that's pretty goddamn romantic.
1: And I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Everyone sort of treats Antony as if you know his—he's emotionally crippled, which he is. He, I mean, he is in that you know he clings too deeply to duty, which he does. He was thrust into that; he didn't choose it. And it—it's all this episode. I think does a lot of work putting the scaffolding in underneath as to why Antony is the way that he is. Yeah, he's not just the dick from season one. Yeah. And because this episode wants to put us on an emotional roller coaster, yeah. we go immediately from this scene to Benedict high at the dinner table.
0: Can we talk about the sweaty Caesar that his hair became? <laughs> it's a very, like, pacey first season of Dawson's Creek, but sweaty and um, Regency period.
1: Look, but he is seeing the light that quite actor. literally. <laughs>
0: The double palm cheek, almost like home alone thing is a thousand times adorable. (laughs) I I would love to see the outtakes of what was tried during that scene (laughs) because clearly the actor was having a ball. (laughs) Uh, That's not all that happened there, although it's the most enjoyable part of it. We have the,
1: what I've written down as the aborted proposal. Uh, Well, I mean, Lady Danbury trying to force something along. And I was actually, I thought this was very out of character for her. Like, Lady Danbury meddles. She absolutely does. But this is quite cruel. And I think it's also very poorly thought out, which is also not Lady Danbury. Like, she was trying to force something without understanding, without knowing how it was going to end.
0: Considering the conversation they have under the marquee, Violet and Danbury, yeah. And the door listening. Do you think they've got a bit of a rush about the victory of the first one and they're just uh, like, maybe. second one's going to happen, it's going to happen now, like, wait, this is our, uh, like, they, they're they so bored. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I look, to be that uh, thoughtless is, yeah, she usually reads just, the room better.
1: Yeah, it was just so heavy-handed. And Lady Danbury doesn't normally walk around with a mallet, you know. There were some the choices right that were a bit weird for Danbury this
0: episode. like the way she was in, like coaching them during the
1: match and like, why aren't you playing then lady? <laughs> like, maybe she's not allowed. Maybe, oh no, I was going to say maybe unmarried or married women aren't allowed to play, but they had a uh, lot of un- women. Played. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I've written for this scene is public proposals are the worst. And then I've underlined "worst" twice and added like four exclamation points to the like, end. Like they really like, no. Ugh. And I think this next scene Ooh. picks up where the Mall scene left off where we see Edwina just absolutely full of self-recriminations, like yelling at herself almost for failing and for being wrong and not doing things properly. And just, she said, I should have been better. I should have been better. (sighs) Yeah.
0: Haven't we all thought that about ourselves at some point? Yeah. And if you think about that going through her head, maybe not, I should be, but I need to do better. I need to try harder. I would like that the whole time. It makes a lot of the masking kind of play a bit more. Like she's almost like there's nothing to express because anything she could express would be just like an anxiety spiral. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So she comes Um, across
0: almost like there's nothing
1: there because she's probably disassociating (laughs) going into her role. Um, I thought it was interesting that they clearly don't have a maid with them because they're oiling each other's hair. Oh, actually, I said oiling each other's hair. We never see Edwina sort of caring for Kate in this way, do we? I think we do later.
0: Do we? I don't. You know I have a terrible memory. But I think the other thing is if you go and stay at a country estate, you're given a maid usually or you take one with you. I could see Danbury offering and them saying no because they already felt that they were indebted
1: to her. Um, and potentially, like, British maids wouldn't know how to care for South Asian hair. Well, Australian or, hairdressers don't know what to do for curly hair, so, like, sorry. right now, so, yeah. <laughs> I did note that Kate couldn't help a little I told you so even while she's trying to cover I mean, her, she is Kate? an eldest daughter. <laughs> we can't help it. <laughs> and then we get more High Benedict, only this time he is creative High Benedict. And a spiral painting. finger painting. Which wasn't I thought it looked, terrible. Yeah, I thought it was nice. I thought it looked like a love heart, actually. Mm. And he finds out. He gets in. He gets in. And then he feels the need to
0: yell it to the sky. It's quite emotional about it.
1: Everybody's emotional in Again, this episode. Again, I do wonder if there's an underlying anxiety issue here with this man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he I he, like he that needs Colin some like,
1: debt. And I'm like, you're at Aubrey Hall. Like, there's nobody around for, like, literally miles. It's fine. Let him yell out the window.
0: I do think there's a storyline about how he's never got to live his own life because he's always been number two. And, like, yeah. and then in season one, the potential to become number one is very, very high. So he's never got to just,
1: you know, this is probably the one thing he's really wanted. Just to refer back to Prince Harry, he's feeling spare anxiety there. Also anxiety-inducing is the fact that Colin mentions Lady Crane. at looked Eloise like it is came like, out of the blue, did it not? Yeah i'm not convinced but and neither is eloise eloise is like dude you went traveling like she's married move on it just feels like we're like wasting time until like penelope's of age anyway (laughs) speaking of penelope we're back in london and lady whistledown saves genevieve delacroix's modiste shop by being a witch she calls her old it's not
0: even that. Well, She's so mean about Cressida and her dress, which is perfectly fine. She's not being vulgar.
1: Like, you don't play with people's reputations like that, girl. The New Bud was, like, Regency color blocking, yeah. and I thought they all looked great, frankly. That pink
0: dress that she starts covering herself up. Like, Penelope publicly shamed a person who was not, sh- like, there's nothing to shame. Yeah. That's mean. Mm. And they haven't set up Cressida being bad enough to, like, warrant... No one deserves any kind of uh,
1: retaliation. But, yeah, it's not making Pen look like a decent human being, honestly. Also, there are, like, 10,000 members of the ton. Like, there's no way that one Modiste can manage for all of them. And Genevieve is not making those dresses. It's all the
0: women in no sunlight out the back, busting <laughs> their asses getting those dresses done.
1: So Penelope saves Genevieve, and then the two of them begin to scheme... I love how they're relating on an entrepreneurial level, but also mm-hmm. it just underscores the meanness of Penelope through this. Yeah.
0: I'd say process. lady Boss, but that's gross. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, I did like this tiny, tiny little scene back at Aubrey hall where Anthony is trying to charm Newton through a crack in the door and Newton's like not having any bit. And like Anthony just closes the door on his face.
0: More Newton, I say. The world is better with dogs. <laughs> as my dog puts her butt into my face,
1: <laughs> it's
0: not enough um, Newton. So we then have this scene of Kate coming back from a horse ride. Was Anthony waiting for her? Look,
1: I don't know. Also, we never talk about the fact that Kate rides astride all the time. Well, because we're full approval mode. I mean, obviously, but yeah. and they're wearing
0: matching approval. blue. It's a little, a little bit off, but it's matching blue. Yeah. And there's a bee. There's another bee. Which looks terrible on the first set of frames, honestly. It looked, I don't know, it just looked bad. Anyway, they're actually having a proper conversation about, like, what happened last night, dude. Yeah. And he's trying to explain. Then the bee situation, she gets bitten. Anthony has a panic attack. She realises what's going on. She puts her hand on his chest So she can feel his heart, I guess, to match their hearts. And if she puts his hand on her breasticles to feel her heart, to calm him down. I don't know how Kate knew how to do that, but she did.
1: Maybe she just, you know. It's actually quite a common technique in parenting. You know, like you can calm somebody down by having them close enough and then controlling your own breathing. Mm because instinctively you match your breath to the people around you. So by breathing calmly and having him feel her breath, like physiologically, he would respond and start calming down as well. But of course, obviously, in this case, he also has his hand on her heartbeat so he can feel that she's alive. She puts her hand on his heartbeat because it's a romance series and it makes a nice duality. And then, of course, their noses touch, which I love. I know some people are like, their noses touch too much. Just kiss already. But I actually quite like. I, I kind of like often. it too.
0: It goes from sort of like panic attack to earnest moment of connection to uber horniness. Yeah. And it yeah. plays
1: without words. And boy, do they sell it? Because they have that breathing together moment, mm. and then they're like, "Fuck, we can't breathe together." And then they all ha- they have to run away and breathe apart. Yeah. Just to get
0: serious before we talk about how hot they are a bit more, I have this, like, need for Kate to have something about her grief and her backstory in Season 3. We're probably not going to get it. But wouldn't it be great if Mary taught her that technique to calm down while she was having nightmares and stuff? Anyway, they're so hot together. (laughs) Like, the actors have such amazing chemistry. It's amazing. It
1: is. There's a lot that they do with just breathing in this scene that really ties. It is. It's compelling. And it sort of ties one section of the emotional arc up and then opens another one wide open.
0: There's a constant question of will they, won't they every time they're on screen together. Like it is like a cliffhanger all the time. Considering they're only on what screen together 36 minutes the whole season. Like... It's probably smart. If they run on more, with all combust. <laughs> but I would like more.
1: They make it work.
0: All right, and that was the end of the episode. Do you have a what, The Featherington? Just like, why The Featherington? Probably more. <laughs> no, what the
1: Featherington? The more Featherington? I watch
0: these episodes, the more I'm like, this is. <laughs> I would prefer they spent time setting up Francesca and other characters in the Bridgerton family than The
1: Featheringtons. It just feels a bit unnecessary. They could do it in a better way. All right. I um, What the Featherington for this episode is Why the Featherington, and we will move on. Now it's time for What Would Danbury Do?
0: This is where we imagine that a character from another book picks up their pen and seeks advice from our saviour of straight talk, Lady Danbury. This episode's letter comes from Neha
1: from Suleika Snyder's Big Bad Wolf. Dear Lady Danbury, I know that Joe Peluso is absolutely guilty, but my role as his lawyer is to dig beneath the surface and find out what circumstances led to his actions. But he won't give me anything except bedroom eyes and sexual innuendo. Now we've gone on the run together because I followed my gut instead of my brains and we're in a battle for our lives. I know he feels something for me, but he won't let himself be happy. He doesn't think he deserves it. How do I make him see that choosing to live And to love can be the bravest thing a man can do. Well,
0: knowing what I know about books like this, he would have kept whatever secret for a stupid reason. So I'd probably knock some sense into him physically. (laughs) But I would very much enjoy the heavy breathing and close confines and uh, the sexy innuendo. But I would also be driven up the wall by him. So I would want to run him over probably as well. It would be complicated. Got complicated feelings about him. I, uh, well, firstly, this isn't professional.
1: You're a lawyer. You can get disbarred for this shit. Is he worth it? That's a genuine concern through this book in a way that I really appreciated because it's something that's not genuinely concerning in a lot of books. Yeah. That follow oh, good. I haven't read line. this book,
0: so like I'm down. <laughs> I'm always like, you don't even know if he's worth it. Is it running away together in nice locales, or oh, is she eating not. like cold fries and sleeping in a tent, or like <sighs> falling asleep in a staircase in an abandoned building or something? Like ugh,
1: that's not that sexy. They do have rooms that they go to in that have actual. Hotels. No, well, I mean, she takes advantage of her community. To find places to hide away. And then they also have other places to hide away. So it's not quite living in alleyways, but it's definitely not like hanging out at home and getting to know each other. It's definitely running for their lives and like having sex in inconvenient places. I mean, because I'm a practical gal, what kind of future could you have with this stud muffin?
0: Does he have any money put aside for you to have a good life after this is over when he's obviously cleared of all wrongdoings? Is he someone you'd like to
1: introduce to your mother? But then he could have pacey energy and it'd be all worth it. He definitely does not have pacey energy. This is very much, uh, I don't even, I can't even think of who he would have energy of. McSteamy? (laughs) No, because he's very, I have done bad things. You cannot necessarily guarantee I will not do bad things again in the future. I made my decisions. I'm going to live with them, but I'm not taking anyone else. Like a convincing else- Jon Snow? Yeah, actually, like a very convincing Jon Snow. Could Jon Snow with confidence? Yeah,
0: exactly. Like supreme confidence.
1: Also, if Jon Snow were a shapeshifter.
0: Oh, literally a big bad wolf. Literally a big bad wolf. Oh, I need to think of another comparison. But yes, does he smell like a wet dog? I don't think so.
1: Reasonably sure, no. I
0: think this is what I struggle with paranormal is like, a merman would smell fishy a werewolf would smell like wet dog maybe a vampire would
1: smell metallic and gross none of this would be attractive i don't disagree with the vampire i think that a merman might smell quite nice like the sea like the ocean like an oyster fresh oysters smell nice
0: they do that i meant that as a compliment
1: Oh okay. all right.
0: Well let's, all right, let's... um I think I'm out. What would you like to tell us about the book? Okay. I'm just speculating and doing it. Look, for all
1: yeah. that Niha makes interesting choices, she does sort of make them with reasonable eyes wide open in that she knows what she's doing, she realizes it's not the right thing to do, but it is the thing that she wants to do because she believes that there's a lot more to the story of his arrest and what he's done and she feels a kinship to him as also a supernatural and also like she really wants to bang him like a lot. So once she does that, she feels like she's basically compromised already and should might as well be in for a penny and for a pound and they go on an adventure together. But um, I did think that the, you know, I don't deserve to love kind of situation because he's done a bad thing in this case had some neat parallels yeah. to I don't deserve to love from Anthony's point of view, not because Anthony's done bad things, but because something bad might happen in the future. And
0: well, yeah, I mean, yeah. you honestly sold me with the uh, heroine actually thinking of professional ramifications. So uh, call me boring, but I like a practical gal.
1: She uses it throughout. Like I gave up my law career for this. So maybe you can listen to I mean, to warranted. Me Do you know how long you go to <laughs> law school for? <laughs>
0: Jeez, and what income she might be giving up for the rest of her life. Like, that's <laughs> financial independence, man. got to be worth it. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for Episode 3. We'll be back in a fortnight with Bridgerton on Netflix, Season 2, Episode 4. Plus, our bonus episodes are back again this season. Make sure you subscribe to catch some truly surprising conversations with Bridgerton-adjacent experts. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at BridgertonPod and Instagram as at WWDDpod or send us an email at bridgertonpod at gmail.com. This episode was recorded on the traditional and unceded lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon Wurrung people. Thanks for listening and remember WWDD.